Today's reading is from Luke 15, the whole of the chapter. Uh, That's on page 740 of the Church Bibles, the top of the left-hand column, page 740. And we're looking at three parables, three stories that Jesus told the listeners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the inherit of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, put the best robe. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet for you, sorry, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A while back, I had a friend who sort of became interested in Christianity and he started coming along to church and and to Bible study and that's actually where I met him because he came along with a mutual friend. He was a really interesting guy. He was studying viticulture But what was really interesting about him was that he seemed to love making people feel uncomfortable. You know those kind of people? He just knew what to say and and how to act so that he was enjoying himself, but you were feeling tortured. He had this effeminate voice that he loved to put on, and he'd always do and say inappropriate things, make inappropriate jokes and imply and suggest inappropriate things. And I say he was sort of interested in Christianity because I remember thinking that he wasn't going to hang around long. I was expecting that he'd just figure out at some point that he wasn't interested in God and he'd just stop coming to church. And I remember thinking back then that it would probably be easier that way. Because I felt uncomfortable around him. I felt kind of like he dragged me down. It wasn't that he really influenced me, I just didn't know how to react to him. And at the time, I felt like God wouldn't have been happy with me spending time with someone like Him. What makes God happy in these kind of situations? What does God want from us in those kind of times? Today, on the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus tells us what makes God really happy. And He has plenty to say about what God wants us to be and to do in those kind of situations, like with my awkward friend. Today, we see that what makes God happy is the complete opposite of what the Pharisees think makes God happy. See, the Pharisees, like many religious leaders in in all sorts of different religions, they think that what makes God happy is keeping away from sinners, keeping clear of sinners. And they think that what makes God happy with us is when we also keep clear of sinners. Have a look at verse 1 in chapter 15. Luke writes, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They think clearly something's wrong with Jesus. If he can happily share a meal with bad people, then he can't be from God. And so Jesus tells these three stories, all with a similar meaning, to show that they've got God all wrong. In the first story, he says in verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And in the second story, in verse 8, he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? We'll come back to the third story in a minute. But these two stories about, are about that strong desire that someone has to find something they've lost. They're about putting in large amounts of effort to find what's lost. And Jesus' point is that in the same way, God puts in a large amount of effort to find what's lost. So much so that God's desire to find the lost could seem to some people unwise. This is our first point. God's desire to find the lo- what's lost is so strong that some people might think it sounds unwise. I mean, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, aren't you better off just cutting your losses at that point? Apparently, the average family back then would have had around 15 sheep. So you're left with 99. That's pretty good, isn't it? But in the story, the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open field, which seems a bit risky, and he searches and he searches until he finds the one that's lost. The picture of God that Jesus is painting is that God has a strong desire to find the lost individual. Not only might we be baffled by God's intense desire to find the lost, we might also find God's joy baffling. And this is our second point. God's joy over finding the lost could seem extravagant. I mean, look at what the characters do when they find what's been lost in the stories. The shepherd, when he finds the sheep in verse 5, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He happily carries about 70 kilos back. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. Or the lady, when she finds the coin in verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Their reactions seem a little over the top, don't they? I mean, you have to wonder about the economic credentials of these characters in the story, don't you? Would the cost of hosting your neighbours and friends to celebrate what you've found really be justified by the economic advantage that you've gained? Surely it costs more to have the party. But that's the point, isn't it? Their desire to find what's lost and their joy when they find what's lost is extravagant. We understand what it's like to lose something and the joy that you feel when you find it. But there's something baffling about the intensity of the joy that these characters feel. There's something familiar and yet there's something very foreign Just in these two stories, Jesus shows the Pharisees that it's not him who's got the wrong picture of God. It's them. It's not him who's got it wrong about what God loves. It's them. God has a very different view of the lost to the Pharisees. They think God wants to keep away from sinners and that he wants us to keep away from them too. But Jesus says God, in fact, wants the very opposite. If anything, from these two stories, you'd have to conclude that God seems to have a bias toward finding the lost. I mean, look at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
God loves righteousness. He loves holiness. He loves purity. But from these stories, you'd have to say God has an even greater love. God loves mercy. In the mind of a Pharisee, someone who's lost to God has got no value. They cease to matter. But God sees it very differently. Like a a lost coin or, or a lost sheep still holds its value, a lost person is still intensely valuable to God. I think it's easy for us to to judge the Pharisees and kind of think, what on earth were they thinking? How could they get God so wrong? But before we, we do judge them like that, we should try and put ourselves in their shoes. They have a dream of a country and a society that's dedicated to God and where righteousness, what's good, is celebrated and it flows down from the top all the way to every level of society. But then you have Jesus, this popular preacher, popular with the people. And what message does he seem to be communicating? That tax collectors and prostitutes are welcome in this society, in this kingdom of God. Tax collectors, people who get rich by exploiting their fellow citizens. These days they'd be drug dealers or phone scammers or bikies, sinners, people who drag down their fellow citizens with them to the gutter. These days there'd be meth heads or massage parlour prostitutes. Now, still in the Pharisees' shoes, we're walking down Hindley Street, just passing through, it's okay, we're on our way to Rundle Street Mall, relax. But along the way we see Jesus, And he's having a pub lunch and a beer with these kind of peoples. Drug dealers, massage parlour prostitutes and the like. And he's laughing with them at something that one of them just said. We managed, just managed to convince ourselves it's probably okay. But then we see one of these drug dealers doing a drug deal with one of the prostitutes behind Jesus' back. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, what is this? Why is he even with these people? I mean, Trinity City is just around the corner. Why isn't he there? Look back at verse 1. It doesn't say, it doesn't say in verse 1, now the former tax collectors <clears throat> and those who were once sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's not what it says. It's the current tax collectors. It's the current sinners. But surely God's name is brought down by Jesus, even being around these people, let alone welcoming them, eating with them. The last story that Jesus tells speaks powerfully to those of us who feel burdened by this question. It's a bit different to the other two stories. Like them, it also says that God really, really wants the lost to be found. And it also says that he celebrates when they are found. But it also says something else. It also says that there is more than one way to be lost to God. Let's have a look at how this story unfolds. Verse 11. Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, 
give me my share of the estate. Now, there's something very wrong with this family. The younger son wants his share of the inheritance now, which, in a way, is like saying, I wish you were dead already, Father. I want your stuff. I don't want you. For some reason, the father is incredibly generous to his son, and and he gives him what he wants. And we see exactly what his, his son wants in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The only thing the younger son doesn't waste in this story is his time. He's keen to get away from his father as quick and as far as he can. And when he does, what does he do? Well, he wastes all his wealth. Who knows exactly how the, young, the older brother says later on that it was with prostitutes. But however he does it, he foolishly finds himself with nothing. And so when a famine comes, his only way to survive is by feeding pigs. A job so pathetic he can't even feed himself. A job completely offensive to even a bad Jew. He's destitute. Literally, he's filthy from feeding pigs, covered in their mess. And as a person, he's just as filthy. Worse, he's abused and used his father. He's abused and used women and other people for his own pleasure. In every way, this guy is filthy. It's amazing how hardship can cause us to, to come to our senses. Now, when life is is so good, it's just so easy to forget about God. When we have the gifts, who needs the giver? But hardship, it suddenly, it painfully opens our eyes to the truth. C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly like this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. In his pain, in his terrible situation... The flag of truth is planted. The younger son finally comes to his senses. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Two things become crystal clear to him. Just how filthy he's been. And yet, just how kind his father had always been, even to the servants. So he heads home to throw himself on his father's mercy. But actually, he has no real comprehension of just how deep his father's mercy runs. Because as he walks past the land that was sold so that he could have his inheritance, 
and he pauses briefly to pathetically try to wash himself of the filth from looking after pigs. As he starts up the driveway, his father sees him. And in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. His father runs to him and literally falls on his neck and kisses this filthy child. And as the son tries to get out his pre-prepared speech, the father isn't even listening because he's too busy restoring his son. He says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Not let's feed him. No, let's have a feast and celebrate. So far, we've seen nothing different to what we saw in the other two parables. We've just seen that God's desire is to find the lost and that God rejoices when the lost are found. But now, something is introduced in the parable, something new. There's the question of how are we going to react to a God like this? There's a question about whether we'll share God's heart or not. Because this story's not really about the younger son. It's really about the father and another character, the older son. In this parable, Jesus is saying that there's more than one way to be lost to, the, to, the, to God. Look at how this unfolds in the story. As the younger brother comes in from working hard in the field all day, he hears music and laughing in the distance. And when he finds out what's going on, look at his reaction in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. There's nothing to celebrate in his mind. Celebrating would be like endorsing his brother. It'd be like letting him off unpunished. And he feels so strongly about this that now it's his turn to want to separate himself from his family. He can't even bring himself to enter the family home. So he sits in the cold and the dark in silent protest. But in this story, unlike his brother, he doesn't come to his senses. Instead, the father comes outside to him and he pleads with him to come inside. But listen to the son's response in verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Do you see how this older son thinks of his father and what he says there? He thinks of him like a slave master. He thinks of him as a harsh ruler giving out orders. The older son goes on in verse 29. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older son has less idea of his father's character than even the younger son. See, the younger son hoped out of mercy that he could be considered an unworthy servant. The older son thinks out of his service he could be considered a worthy son. But in the end, he's not that different to his younger brother. Did you notice that he has the same goal as, as what the younger son had all those years before? Verse 29, Yet you never gave me even a young goat 
so I could celebrate with my friends. The older son also wants the father's things, not so he can be with the father, but, but so that he can celebrate without him, with his friends. He has the same goal that the younger son had. He just has a different means of getting it, of aiming for it. The younger son aimed at his goal with outright rebellion and the older son aims at his goal with reluctant service. Considering himself a slave of his father, he aims to earn the right to his father's possessions. But he's got his father all wrong. Look at how the father has always considered him in verse 31. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father's not holding out on him. But the older son can't see it because he wants the gifts without the giver, just as much as his younger brother did. And he hates the idea of celebrating over someone who's come home, who hasn't earned his place. In this story, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who hate the idea of welcoming sinners, that there is more than one way to be lost to God. With both sons in the story, it's not the father who cuts them off, is it? Each son cuts himself off from the father. Both are lost to the father in their own way. But in the end, it's only the son who hates the father's mercy who finds himself outside the party. I find it amazing just how tenderly Jesus in this story has the father speaking with the older son. Did you notice that? Going outside, sitting down with him, pleading with him. Given that the older son clearly represents the Pharisees, this is amazing. Even though Jesus clashes time and time again with these rule-keeping religious hypocrites, the Father's heart that Jesus shares is that no one would be lost to the Father. Not even them. He pleads with them to come inside. In this third story, Jesus is leaving the Pharisees and us with a question. Will we share the heart of the Father? Will we be there in that party, celebrating with him, with him, loving mercy and generosity, loving him for him? Or are we going to exclude ourselves from the party because we don't actually want this kind of God? We don't want his mercy. Later in Luke, when a terrible tax collector repents and comes back to God, Jesus is ecstatic and he says in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What the Father loves, what Jesus loves, is when someone who is lost is found. The Pharisees get upset that Jesus is willing to welcome and eat with sinners, but they have no idea what Jesus is willing to do. They've got no idea of the depths that Jesus is willing to sink to, to seek and save the lost. Jesus so shares the Father's heart that he will sink to blood, pain, agony, humiliation, nakedness and death on a cross for each one who is lost. 
so that we can turn back to a God who is just waiting to celebrate over us. I know I say this every week and I'll probably keep saying it every week, who knows, but surely today has got to be Jesus' greatest avant-garde moment. Surely this is turning upside down what we think we know about God, what every religion thinks it knows about God. We think God will only accept me if I meet His standards. But Jesus says that standing before God in our rags, He covers us with His best robe. We think if I clean up my act and, and turn to Him, then He might accept me. But Jesus says, if we just turn up, a wreck, seeking His mercy, He'll make us a son or a daughter. And this is not saying that God celebrates evil. He celebrates people turning away from evil. He celebrates people turning back to Him. And He goes to extreme lengths to welcome back the lost. And here's the thing, He wants us to share His heart. If we're going to share God's heart, it's got to mean, you realise, that we love people when they're still unlovely. Have you noticed the way that God builds His church from some of the most wretched people around? I mean, think about it. Paul murdered Christians before becoming an apostle. Augustine was a sex addict and pagan before becoming one of the greatest theologians who ever lived. John Newton was a slave trader before becoming the songwriter who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I Once Was Lost But Now Am Found. No doubt he had this story from Jesus in mind. But did you know that John Newton, after he became a Christian, was a captain on a slave ship three more times? And it actually took many years for him to speak out publicly against slave trading. He later wrote about what he saw on those slave ships and he wrote this. He said, this is a confession which comes too late It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. But it took him time to realise that. We don't welcome and embrace people because they've instantly got it all together. We welcome and embrace people because that's the heart of God. That's what He loves. Is that our heart? We love what God loves, then we need to open our hearts and minds to people, see them with compassion and metaphorically run and embrace them. When people come in here, do they leave thinking, wow, this place was far more accepting than I expected it to be. It's not easy to embrace people while pointing them to their need to repent. You know, there are times when it's hard, times when it's very hard. When the second bottle of rum gets pulled out at a dinner party, when the dodgy joke gets told, when your friend puts on an effeminate voice and says inappropriate things. It's not easy, that's the reality. But what makes God happy is when we share His heart to see lost people turn back to Him. See, what did God want me to do with that awkward friend that I was telling you about at the beginning? 
He wanted me to look on him with compassion. He wanted me to be patient with him. Not compromising on the truth, but not being judgmental either. You know, as I I look back all these years later, I don't think I did that too well. But there were other friends who did it wonderfully. And in God's mercy, he didn't go away like I thought he would. He's still going, trusting in God. That's what God loves. And that's what he wants us to love too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to your true character, your extreme mercy, your extravagant joy over seeing the lost found. But Lord, so quickly our thinking becomes corrupted. Lord, and we think it's either by our merit that you rejoice over us. Or Lord, we judge those who are in the process of turning to you. Lord, help us to be like Jesus and not like the older son. Lord, help us to love what you love and help us to go to extreme lengths to see what you love happen, to see people who are lost come to know you. Lord, give us the compassion we need, the patience, the wisdom, the love to walk alongside people as we point them to their need to turn back to you. Lord, it's hard But what's hardest is our hearts, Lord. Soften them, please, by your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh, daily, a vision of just who you are, just what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The depths that he was willing to sink to for us, for us, the one. The one individual that you also have rejoiced over, Lord. We ask that you would be with us as a church, but you would also be with us in our workplaces, in our families, in every aspect of our lives, Lord. May we be affected by who you are, this amazing Father of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.